Hello, and welcome to Strength and Solidarity. I'm Akwe Amosu, here with a short season we're calling The Best of Strength and Solidarity. With the help of listeners, we've picked some favourite episodes from our first three seasons that we think tell us something interesting about human rights struggles in the current era. This time, we're going right back to our third ever episode and a conversation I had with Kayum Ahmed, a South African lawyer with deep knowledge of the human rights movement in his country. The context was that in the years preceding this interview, we'd seen some huge student protests in South Africa over institutional racism and the cost of tertiary education. The Fees Must Fall movement began in 2015 and was still resurgent five years later. And one striking feature was the protesters' scepticism. South Africa's rights-based constitution and the infrastructure upholding rights in the post-apartheid era, so admired elsewhere in the world, wasn't cutting much ice with them. Kayum, by the way, no longer works at the Open Society Foundations, but is still at Columbia University. Here's episode three from the 5th of January, 2021. Hey, I'm Akwe and this is Strength and Solidarity. Strength and Solidarity is a podcast about the people and ideas driving and disrupting human rights work around the world. In this episode, a tough critique of the human rights framework and questions about its relevance for black and brown activists. And in our coda, we'll be diving into the history behind a song commemorating the struggle over 50 years ago when the US civil rights struggle met African independence in an Atlanta hotel. My interview this week is with Kayum Ahmed, a leading South African voice on human rights. He began his activism seeking to uphold the rights of HIV-positive people in his country, eventually becoming the CEO of the South African Human Rights Commission, before moving on to study in both Europe and the US. He currently works in the public health programme of the Open Society Foundations in New York, and teaches as an adjunct professor at Columbia University. Ever since I heard Kayum describe a trenchant critique of the human rights framework by young South African student protesters, I've wanted to know more. So I asked him to explain why they were so sceptical. It starts in some ways in 1948 with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which fails to take into consideration slavery and colonization and the injustices of the past. It seems to draw a line in the sand and suggests that we only look forward um, without taking account of these inherent systemic issues, historical injustices that give rise to the systems of oppression that we have in, in the first place at the moment. So this is some of the, the challenge with human rights discourses and its inability to tackle those bigger questions. So I think an advocate for the Universal Declaration would say the whole point of human rights is that they don't distinguish between humans. Any human has these rights. And so a demand that there should be some retrofitting is unnecessary. 
these rights are inherent in humanness and black people are human. The declaration didn't exist during slavery. It exists now and it covers everybody. So what's the answer to that? I think it's a it's a good argument. The The challenge, of course, is that even the Universal Declaration says something like, uh, we are born inherently equal as human beings. And it makes an assumption about this inherent equality. There are counter arguments to the inherent nature of, of rights discourses, whether rights are something that you are born with as an individual or whether it's something you claim as a sort of legal right. And so depending on where you fall on that philosophical line, I think if one argues that rights are inherent, then clearly the differences between human beings and how we are born and where we are born uh, must then play out um, subsequent to that birth. So if you are born poor and black or rich and white, you may be equal, but your outcomes are fundamentally different. And then for those who argue that rights are something you can claim, that everyone is equal in their ability to claim those rights. Again, rights have largely become a sort of declarationist or legal discourse in which your claim to a particular right is often only possible through a human rights commission or through the court system, which again, in some ways is designed for a particular kind of person to claim their rights. So even even if we agree that everyone is born with inherent uh, dignity, with inherent rights, how one claims those rights or accesses those rights becomes another barrier uh, to achieving this universal sense of, of human rights. So you've written about how those who feel that the rights framework is inadequate have talked about the importance of decolonizing it, of the decolonial frame. How does that help? The decolonial frame attempts to de-link from dominant Euro-American thinking about rights. So, for instance, one of the counter-arguments made by those schooled in sort of the African philosophical tradition would suggest that human beings are not necessarily born equal, but that humanness is something we acquire over time, that you become human, you are in the process of becoming human. And that may be a very different way of looking at the idea of, of humanness and the human in human rights. There are traditions who draw on um, indigenous thinking to argue that the idea of the human is deeply problematic and flawed, that humans can't be separated from non-human nature. And so when we think about the human in human rights, it privileges an anthropocentric worldview that uh, that disregards um, uh, climate, hu- uh, uh, nature, um, the trees and animals and so on. So there's there's also that particular perspective. And then I think there's a perspective which suggests that no matter how hard we try, human rights is a flawed discourse and it can't be decolonized. And so a decolonial approach invariably suggests that we need to abandon the human rights framework altogether and come up with an alternative, a new way of looking at the world. And those who argue for that more radical approach suggest that human rights have been so completely co-opted through the United Nations systems, through countries like Israel and Saudi Arabia, who claim to be human rights defenders, 
but we know or not. And so if a discourse has been so profoundly abused, perhaps it's time to move on to, to some alternative framework. Uh, and I think these are the sorts of critiques that are being offered at the moment around human rights. I mean, I suppose another counter position might be, look, the Declaration of Human Rights is a statement of principle. It's not a tool for correcting real power imbalances in the real world. And that if you want to do that, it's not declarations, principles that make the change. They may inform your choices once you have achieved the change you want to make, but you need to mobilize mass power to overthrow the advantage that people with power, whether they're white or rich or whatever other self-empowering tools they've managed to amass, are are using. And so I, I guess, is it possible that the critique is overestimating the power of the principle itself to make change? I think the critique is that if we were to mobilize the masses, as it were, to overthrow those in power, to challenge those in power. One of the critiques is that human rights discourses and frameworks are designed in such a way that they would either tacitly support those who hold power or potentially be an obstacle to those who want to to challenge power. In that, human rights frameworks may suggest that overthrowing a government is completely uh, against human rights principles, that you have to engage in some sort of quote-unquote civilized discourse, and that you need to use the legal mechanisms available in order to change things. So so there's an inherent contradiction there. The, the other is that human rights frameworks may in fact um, aid and abet those in positions of power. It creates a particular framework and paradigm within which we need to operate. And so if we are going to be challenging the system and overthrowing the system, it probably means challenging this this human rights framework at the same time, which is so embedded and knitted uh, into the system. So that's, I suppose, a a counter critique to the the counter critique. It's complex and messy and Honestly, one of the questions that people then often ask is, so what is the alternative, right? If not for the human rights framework, what are you suggesting? And I think this is is where I I come up short. I don't know the answer. So I continue to operate within this human rights paradigm, using it for its value and its power. And I'm not saying it doesn't have any of those. I, I think it is an incredibly powerful tool. But at the same time, we need to build an alternative vision, an alternative framework. Um, And I struggle to figure out what that looks like exactly. It's noticeable to me that you don't see the human rights frame feature prominently in the most passionate black struggles in the world today. Is this the reason, this critique that you're laying out, is that the reason why human rights is not, despite being so powerfully anti-racist, in its framing, is not showing up? So on the one hand, the Black Lives Matter movement has come out publicly saying that they are a human rights organization, uh, that they are a human rights uh, group. And they, they did this in this fantastic Time magazine article. At the same time, when I, I talk to student movements 
working in different parts of the world, particularly most recently the decolonial movements that have emerged at universities um, in different parts of the world, human rights is not part of the vocabulary of liberation. It is in fact seen as having been co-opted by those in power. It's often the universities in those contexts, the, the vice chancellors and the presidents of universities who would talk about um, engaging in civil discourse and talking about civil rights and human rights. The students uh, want a new radical language um, that doesn't necessarily uh, operate at the level of, of uh, the human rights uh, frameworks that are being articulated by those in positions of power. So. Yeah, there is something to be said about the lack of human rights discourses um, in these conversations. And I think that certainly raises questions about its continued value in this new generation of struggle that I see emerging, particularly among black-led organisations across the world. I suppose that the human rights community itself may be somewhat to blame for this situation or this uh, scepticism, because when you look back to the Cold War and the heavy emphasis that Western countries uh, laid on civil and political rights in their fight with the Soviet bloc. There was very little interest then in a broader definition or a more inclusive definition of rights that would have met some of the demands and claims and concerns of black and brown people, excluded people, poor people in the world. I think that's fundamentally part of the the challenge that plays out even today. And, and so even in a place like the United States, um, talking about socioeconomic rights, and I happen to teach a class on socioeconomic rights um, at a law school here in New York, where when I first proposed the idea, and I believe it or not, class started three or four years ago, and I'm the first person to teach a class in socioeconomic rights at Columbia Law School. They've never taught a class on this before. And when I proposed the class to the faculty committee, they were very worried that no one would turn up for the class. Of course, it's, it's oversubscribed just because of the, um, the interest that people have in developing this idea of socioeconomic rights. It, it also shows how our systems of education are so completely out of touch with where, where younger people are. So while the discourse may have been um, and I agree with you, socioeconomic rights definitely seen as an, an Eastern, more sort of left-wing approach to rights discourses. There's increasingly a recognition of its value um, in places such as such as the US. Europe, of course, has, has long moved toward adopting this um, idea. But the problem that we have today is that a company like Johnson & Johnson, for instance, a large pharmaceutical company, that has been involved in awful scandals about making medicines available and, and uh, being sued in court for um, various products that caused cancer. On their website, they openly sign up to and acknowledge both the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights as well as the International Covenants on Civil and Political and Socioeconomic and Cultural Rights. So here you have a private entity that openly endorses human rights principles and instruments and believes that what they are doing in terms of their work is to promote these these human rights ideals. And so it raises this paradox in some ways. You have these instruments that are meant to ensure liberation from the, the very corporate entities that 
that have now adopted these these frameworks. And I, I feel like when you get to that point in the life of a discourse, that perhaps it's time to think of radical alternatives. And maybe the time for tinkering with human rights frameworks is over. Perhaps as a provocation, it is time to abandon rights frameworks and, and to move on to alternative ways of, of seeing the world. One that speaks to the radicality that students and, and black folks and brown folks across the world have been pushing for and that human rights has thus far miserably failed to deliver on. Kayum Ahmed. We spoke to him in New York. And now for the coda, our regular segment where someone recalls a poem, a proverb, a quotation, or perhaps a piece of music that gives them inspiration or insight into the work they do to advance rights. This time, we're going back to the US civil rights struggle in the early 1960s. Journalist, author and historian of the civil rights struggle, Charles Cobb Jr. was in his early 20s and a field organiser for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, in Mississippi. He wanted to tell me about a song commemorating the day in 1963 when some young black activists in the Deep South met a Kenyan whose country was about to become independent and who was to be its first vice president. We went down to the peach tree manor to see old King Rodinga. The police said, what's the matter to see old King Rodinga? The police, he looked mighty hard at old King Rodinga. He got scared cause he was an ex-mama to see old King Rodinga. Oh, King Rodinga, oh, King Rodinga, oh, King Rodinga, oh, King I don't remember how we knew or found out that Oginga Odinga was either on this tour or that he was in Atlanta. We had been called in from the field for a meeting in, in Atlanta at SNCC headquarters. That's why we were there. And then we sort of interrupted our meeting to go <laughs> to go down to this hotel to meet this Mau Mau is what we thought we were going to go. And he was warm. I mean, he, he, I mean, he had no reason to invite us into his room or really his suite and spend that amount of time with him. This was more than just a perfunctory, glad to meet you, glad to meet you. Uh, but he talked to us about Kenya and we talked to him about our movement and, and whatnot for at least an hour. We were invisible to media, and this is 1963. We were always anxious to make what we were doing visible. And there was a risk hovering over everything. That was one of the things I think 
interested Ogingo Odinga because I, I think the level of violence directed at activists like us was unknown to them. It's one thing to be refused service at a restaurant or something like that. Uh, it's another thing to have your house or church blown up. If you white folks are on a straight up, I'm gonna call Joe Mo Kenyatta. Oh, dingo, 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 Matthew Jones was in the group that came to see uh, Ogenga Odenga. Matthew was working in Southwest Georgia as a SNCC field secretary. I think Matthew had actually studied opera at the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga. <laughs> he wanted to be an opera singer, but he became kind of one of the important songwriters in SNCC and, and, and later would be one of the original singers in that core group called the SNCC Freedom Singers. Anyway, Matthew was there. He just came up with this song and it became a very popular song in SNCC, you know, almost right away. Okinga Odinga was not yet the vice president of Kenya because Kenya wasn't independent yet. It was about to become independent. But what impressed, what stayed with us and what we wanted to talk about was the fact that here is this black guy getting ready to be the vice president of a country. That was brand new to us. And yes, we had read about Nkrumah and, and yes, we knew the name Sekuture, but really to be face-to-face -face or in conversation with someone who is getting to ready to be the vice president of a country or a political figure was what was really new to us. The white folks down in the Mississippi knocking you on your rock And if you holler freedom You'll wind up in the swamp Thanks to Charlie Cobb for that window on a fascinating historical encounter with Kenyan anti-colonial leader Oginga Odinga, memorialised in the music of the civil rights movement. And also thanks to Smithsonian Folkways for allowing us to play the song by Matthew Jones and the SNCC Freedom Singers. If you have a favourite item that relates to your own passion for rights and justice and would like to tell us about it, please do so 
drop us a line at pod at strengthandsolidarity.org. Thanks for listening to that episode of Strength and Solidarity, which was originally released in January 2021. We'll be back in three weeks with another in this series featuring some favorite episodes from our first three seasons. If you're enjoying these conversations, we'd be very grateful if you could give us a star rating and tell other people what you've heard and liked. It's a great way for us to find new listeners. Our season five, with a bunch of new interviews, kicks off in late October.